What's up, dudes? Ready to order? Are you ready to order? Uh, uh, what's up, dudes? What's up, dudes? is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we find any. There's only so many ways you can say that opening line. <laughs> I, as far as I know, there's only one way you can say it. Yeah. Today's theme is rotten movies we love. We'll be picking our favorite movies with a 50% or less on Rotten Tomatoes and making our case for why these reviews are wrong. These are not so bad they're good movies, but movies that we genuinely love. So to kick us off, we are going to say our name and our favorite tomato dish. Jordan. My name is Jordan, and mine is made up of tomato. Tomato, salt, pepper, Dijon mustard, basil chiffonade, homemade honey wheat bread, tons of Duke's mayonnaise, otherwise known as the tomato sandwich. Well, my favorite tomato dish is pizza. <laughs> what's, what's your name? Wow. Good one. Gibby. I'm Gibby. My name is Hudson. I'm going to go with the fried green tomato sandwich. Really going for the twist ending on that because I said fried green tomatoes. Yeah. yeah. Sandwich. It was riveting. Sandwich. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was on the edge of my seat. Mm-hmm. Thank you. This is Lance, the former bad boy of film <laughs> podcasting, after Gibby stripped me of my title last week with his Michael <laughs> J. Fox joke. You'll get it back tonight. Yeah, I hope so. I'm going with the Insalata Caprese salad. Uh, it's uh, tomatoes and mozzarella. It is absolutely delicious. If you follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm, we have daily questions we post on there, and we asked you guys what your favorite rotten movies were and got a lot of great responses. So what we're going to do again, try this week, is we're all going to imitate you guys as what we think you might sound like. I'm really curious if this is costing us listeners or helping <laughs> us get listeners. But. Gibby, do you want to give Telly Archer a try? Yeah. Well, Love Guru is one that I genuinely love. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I coughed in the middle of my sentence. <laughs> one that I genuinely loved that everybody else... <laughs> this is Tolly Archer with emphysema. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else thought was crap. <laughs> I'm totally Archer. I've got the black lung. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's see how many Good. more listeners we can lose. Keep going. <laughs> Good choice, Tully. Because that was right. terrible. Uh, Allison Umbarger. Hook. You go for that, Jordan. Yeah. Hook. Thirty percent. I must have been just the right age to love that one. Now I want to watch these crappy movies again. That's that's, awesome. you, that sounds a lot like your Mandy Campbell impression. Last <laughs> this, is how, this is how Jordan thinks when we talk. Like his wife talks like this. Jordan, when's my dinner gonna be ready? I'm gonna do uh, Jonah Berkowitz. Hey, I'm Jonah Berkowitz. Holy crap! I just found out that Red has a zero percent from critics, yet somehow has a ninety-one percent audience rating. That's got to be the Biggest divide of any movies on here. That's kind of how I imagine Chef Boyardee sounds. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like I changed my accent halfway through. It started as an Italian (laughs) chef, and I don't know what it ended as. If you want your favorites out on the show, you can leave your comments at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm or tweet us on Twitter at fightaboutfilm. So this this episode was discussing movies that score 
or below a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes that we felt were not deserving of those rankings. I wouldn't call this the same thing as underrated episode, although I think we would call them underrated. This would not, for example, be my list of most underrated films. And I think we probably will do that episode at some point. This is a little bit different than that. Yeah, and these aren't, these aren't bad movies we like either, which I think you'd already alluded to. They're um, good movies we like. Yeah, they're movies good that we movies. think are good. They were well, unfairly judged. That's, I, that's the way I would say it. They're movies that were not properly reviewed, in our opinions. And I think a little bit of what we'll be getting into, d- into today is the relationship between the film and the critic. But first, a history lesson. Ooh. The first reference to throwing Rotten Tomatoes at Bad Stage Acts came in 1883 New York Times article after John Ritchie was hit with a barrage of tomatoes and rotten eggs by an unpleasant audience in New York. The review in the Times article apparently said, a large tomato thrown from the gallery struck him square between the eyes and he fell to the stage floor just as several bad eggs dropped upon his head. Wow. Why? Can you why was how, how bad you have to be? <laughs> I mean, how devastating of an experience that must be that well, you get I'm hit perplexed by... why the crowd was armed with rotten tomatoes. Well, I think they probably brought it with them. I mean, that gathered up at some point. Obviously, a tomato is going to be a cheap object to throw than something of value. <laughs> yeah, like in the back where they sell t-shirts now. Back then, they had fresh tomatoes and rotten tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, you don't hear about <laughs> a lot of like table. bad performers getting pegged with gold nuggets. <laughs> no. That doesn't happen not. a lot. Uh, but things were different back then. Crowds were encouraged to share their opinions, good or bad. A lot of people had gonorrhea. <laughs> <laughs> Unrelated. Huh. They throw gonorrhea at them on stage. I love, Gibby, I love how often you just take a sudden dark left turn into things. Also, infant mortality was really high then. <laughs> they throw... Sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> they would throw their syphilis-ridden children at the stage. All right, Jordan, let's start with your number three uh, rotten movie that you love. Director Mark Rocco's 1989 bomb, Dream a Little Dream. Oh, yeah, the uh, great Mark Rocco. (laughs) (laughs) Jordan really overestimated (laughs) audience appreciation of Mark Rocco. Like there's somebody driving down the street listening to this. Mark Rocco. Finally, they're hitting the Rocco (laughs) films. Probably Mark Rocco is listening to it saying that. (laughs) This fabulous movie racks up a monstrous 0%. Wow. Yes. You win. On Rotten Tomatoes. You win. Yeah, you heard me correctly. Zero. That's remarkable. Uh, That's remarkable. Rocco of <laughs> Well, oh, nice. Well, I uh, I actually did the calculations, and it turns out that... You did the calculations on zero percent? Yeah, it's the absolute <laughs> lowest rating you can get on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm no mathematician, but I think that's right. No, it, it is. I'm telling you, I calculated it. Now, to be fair, the audience score is 66%. Wow, big discrepancy. That might be because I've gone in under 9,000 different aliases and... <laughs> And giving it five stars. Mark Rocco also, I believe. <laughs> you and Mark Rocco. <laughs> I am Mark Rocco. The story, as portrayed by a phenomenal cast, including Jason Robards Jr., Piper Laurie, and Harry Dean Stanton, is about a high school kid and, oh, the Corys are in this as well, Haim and Feldman. Don't forget about them. Both of them. God rest his soul. Corey Haim is dead? Yes. Corey Haim is dead. You didn't as is Mark Rocco. <laughs> he is? Yeah. He died in... Uh, oh, what, really? Yeah. He died oh, at yeah, age 46. Can't make fun of him anymore. We it all out or? Nah, we're keeping it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a body swap movie where a geriatric yoga guru and experimentalist Robard ends up switching consciousnesses with high school Michael Jackson impersonator Feldman <laughs> after a late night collision in the old man's yard. Robards longs to get out of the body swap dreamland and back to his wife. Feldman is in love with his friend's girlfriend, played by Meredith Salinger, and Haim plays the lovable and strange and temporarily crippled sidekick. Rebert, perhaps, had the, <laughs> the most scathing review of this this late 80s movie gem. 
Adam, Dream a Little Dream is an aggressively unwatchable movie. Also saying in the same review, the movie itself, to put it tactfully, is incomprehensible. Aggressively unwatchable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to say to that. It's, it's yeah. a remarkable stringing oh, together of two words. It's and amazing. from a guy who watches movies for a living. Yeah. Yeah. The unwatchability is aggressive. <laughs> I never felt this way. I saw this randomly on TV one afternoon in 10th grade. It felt like an epiphany. Don't get me wrong. This movie has flaws. The most glaring is the editing, but the story still shines for me. The juxtaposition of young and old, youth and maturity, the mysterious bridge between the energy of youth and the knowledge of age. These are the meditations that I find in this movie. It so perfectly captures the struggles and emotions and grandiose raison d'etre that I had in high school, and it spoke to me on that level. Now I exist on the bridge, in the in-between, and it speaks to me there. I'm looking forward to what this movie's going to tell me when I'm old. <laughs> Most people... <laughs> <laughs> Most people claim The Breakfast Club or Fast Times or Clueless as their quintessential high school movie. Not me. I've got Dream a Little Dream. Can I ask you a question? You can ask me as many as you want. What the f*** are you talking about? <laughs> Part of the problem with high school romance movies like this is that as a viewer, once you're out of high school and you know that none of what these characters are dealing with will matter in like six months because they're going to be out of high school and not know each other anymore, yeah. is it, it just makes the stakes like meaningless for you. But I, I'll say this in defense of this movie. It gets around that well because of the body swap angle. I mean, this is one of the few movies. There were six body swap movies that came out in a span of two years. And wow. I, I'm not even going to list them all because it depresses me to say them. But... Um, um, this is one example of a film where that actually helped because it makes it a bigger story about Jason Robard's character chasing his wife down. Her her body has also been swapped, right. so it becomes this tale of these two souls who are linked together even when they're le even when they left their bodies. And I like that part, and it worked. The problem is that between those moments, it feels like we're in Corey Feldman and Corey Haim's fantasy, where they're the clever ones who have it all figured out, and everyone else is stupid. It just doesn't work. It felt like they were using this as a vehicle to portray their talents, and I'm using that word very mm. very loosely, as you should. Corey Haim in this movie in particular is he's like that kid in drama class who could just never stop acting like he was just always on 24-7 and he treated everything like he was on stage and it made parts of this movie unwatchable he walks around playing an air guitar half the time I want to read a couple of his lines because they're they're awful Bobby Keller is Corey Feldman Dinger his name is Dinger yeah. Corey Haim Bobby I'm in love that could be a problem I don't think you understand no no I do understand I really do which hand is it this week, pal? See, I, see, I think that's brilliant. <laughs> you shouldn't think that. The only good part of this movie is Meredith Salinger. I don't remember having a crush on her when I was 12, but I'm not sure why I didn't, because she, no. is, she is outstanding in this movie. It's very easy. You get why everyone is falling in love with her. She mm -hmm. was wonderful. You, you didn't like the, the alley scene with the big speech? And if it had been pinned at the end of a different movie, I think I would have <laughs> liked it. I don't, mean, I don't mean that as an insult. No. Like I was feeling so schizophrenic at that point, because I was watching two different movies. And I think, had, I think if, honestly, if you just edited Corey Haim out of this movie altogether, I mean, no offense, God rest his soul, but he, he really drags this movie down every time he comes on screen. That and the eight-minute scene where Feldman dances like Michael Jackson. Yeah, that was pretty rough. Alrighty, my number three rotten film that I love is Great Expectations, the 1998 film. It's got a 38% on Rotten Tomatoes. The consensus on Rotten Tomatoes is Great Expectations is all surface tension. Beautiful people shot in beautiful locations without any depth or emotion. And guess what, guys? I disagree. Really? Mm. Before Gravity, before Children of Men, before Prisoner of Azkaban, Alfonso Cuaron directed two 
two literary adaptations. First was the beautiful kids movie, The Little Princess. I don't know if any of you guys saw that. Nope. Yeah. It's fantastic. The second was an adaptation of Jordan's favorite author, Charles Dickens' Great love Expectations. Love him. And Lance loves that I love him. So this story takes us from a fishing town in Gulf Coast, Florida, which by the way, I feel like that's a area we rarely see depicted accurately on screen. I mean, the South in general, but especially coastal kind of South, which I really appreciated and kind of fell in love with because of this movie. So it takes you from a fishing town in Gulf Coast, Florida to New York City art scene through the eyes of Finn, played by Ethan Hawke. He was named Pip in the book, but the filmmakers felt that would sound weird in modern times. I'm not sure if Finn's much better. Finn falls in love as a young boy with a girl named Estella, and with their relationship manipulated by Estella's eccentric aunt, she toys with Finn through high school and into adulthood. The story explores how adults affect their children in their lives and whether or not we can improve upon our own mistakes by influencing the next generation for good or bad. It's definitely not a straight retelling, but the creative choices the filmmakers make here are what make it shine. Curran's amazing use of color, beautiful camera movement by one of our greatest cinematographers, Emmanuel Lubezki, artwork by Francesco Clemente, the beautiful original music by Patrick Doyle, and a great eclectic soundtrack featuring Pulp, Chris Carnell, Tori Amos, and the hit single by trip-hop band Mono. You guys might remember... Uh, And the amazing cast filled out by Robert De Niro, Chris Cooper, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Anne Bancroft. Quite the cast. Oscar winners. That's right. Very good cast. Producer Art Linson wrote a book about making the movie. It's called What Just Happened. And I recommend it to anybody that's interested in figuring out what a producer does because it's kind of a great kind of play-by-play of a couple of his films and this one in particular. In the book, Linson reveals that the narration for the movie was written by David Mamet. It was done for free on the condition that nobody ever found out he did it. So he wrote this out of shame? (laughs) Why did he not want his name associated with it? He was working on another movie with him, and so I think he just asked a favor. A Curran film wouldn't be complete without a long one take, and this one has one of the most romantic ones ever put on film. Even after looking looking at the reviews, I can't quite figure out why this one got knocked so much, and I think it suffered from two reasons that quite often come up in these type of films. For one, it was packaged and sold, marketed as a post-Clueless, post-Romeo and Juliet, MTV-friendly version of the classics, which I think might have grown tired by the time that this movie came out. Secondly, adaptations are constantly compared to their source material, and so much of the story and details were changed from this adaptation of Dickens. Fans were turned off to it. I had no connection to the book personally. I'd never read it. So I was able to look at this with clear eyes and really just fell in love with this movie, the style, the heart, the emotion. Still an inspiration to me to this day, and a little scene movie that I'd recommend everybody check out. The second point you brought up, I wanted to ask you about that, because I did a little research on this movie, and and I looked at some message boards like on IMDb, and and the thing that came up was a constant comparison of the book. Although, as I understand it, it's not a direct retelling of the book. Do you think this film would have been better served just completely severing ties with the book? Like, just becoming kind of its own thing, even though it was heavily based on the book? Maybe, but I mean, you can understand why Hollywood would want to slap great expectations on it. Um, But I think... (laughs) I Except mean, that it's such a target. I feel like movies with titles like that become a target for critics. Exactly. That's true, yeah. uh, And I feel like that backfired on them. I get why some executive would be like, no, man, Dickens, that's a yeah, yeah, property yeah. people. Know. But I think that might have killed them here. If they had cl- 
claimed that this was an original, or maybe if it just wasn't called Great Expectations, they changed the name of it. They might have gotten away with a little more of that. It probably yeah. wouldn't have been as Great Expectations of the film. Be like Good Expectations. Yeah. yeah. Fair <laughs> Expectations. Yeah. All right, Gibby, your number three. My number three is the 2010 Hughes Brothers Denzel Washington star, The Book of Eli. It is at 47% on Rotten Tomatoes with a 64% audience score. It's set in a post-apocalyptic future. Uh, Denzel plays a loner named Eli. He's traveling alone across a desolate landscape. Comes across a somewhat civilized town run by Gary Oldman. And during this whole trip, Denzel is protecting something, a book that he has to get someplace. And so basically the story is just him following him across the apocalypse post-taste. The Hughes brothers do some amazing stuff with the camera and you feel like you're in a post-apocalyptic environment. I just, this is a movie that I really like. It's hard to talk about this movie without getting into spoiler territories. And a lot of the reviews I read that were negative about it seem to be really anti the faith aspect of this movie because there's a big heavy faith part of it that going into the film you don't know. Something you don't even realize till the second half of the film. Well this one, I'm actually surprised that it has negative reviews because I remember when it came out, I didn't see it until a well ways after it came out, maybe a few weeks months and people like word of mouth was crazy on this thing though people love this movie yeah yeah it did very well it came out in january or february so it was when it's almost in like the dead time of the film year and it did really well and i think audiences liked it but critics just it's something i think just in general this could be a larger discussion if something is kind of faith-based but not overtly about it or even if it is overtly about it, a lot of times there's a lot of critics that just seem to turn it off immediately yeah so i i, I went to see this one night with a girl i was dating at the time and she kind of dragged me to it i, I was completely not interested and I, I left the theater impacted in a way that I didn't expect and in a way that few films really hit me. This movie is a great example of the idea that so much of what you get out of a movie is a result of what you bring into the movie. Mm-hmm. If you like baseball, you're probably going to get more out of a baseball movie than somebody that, who doesn't. There is a religious spiritual element to this film that I think was absolutely the explanation for why it worked for some people and really didn't work for other people because again it depended on what you brought into it. Some people were just naturally predisposed to not liking it. I don't I don't mean that as a criticism of people. I just think it, it, it's understandable. I mean if you if that if you're not connected to that you know aspect of things and i get why this movie didn't work for you it connected with me on a deeper spiritual level um and i'm not going to go into my personal beliefs or worldview although you can probably (laughs) if you've seen this movie you can probably start to figure them out if you're so inclined but satanist (laughs) (laughs) well no but there was something about his commitment to this mission that just really struck me which i believe gibby said was something he's trying to get to somewhere it it is i can understand how you would have a commitment to that (laughs) (laughs) well if you know what the thing is and what he's trying to do with it 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 makes more sense and we can get into spoiler territory in just a second but at the end of this movie he says a prayer that always it always made me kind of emotional and he's thanking god for for giving him this opportunity and he, he says i fought the good fight i finished the race I kept the faith. And I think regardless of your beliefs or or whether you don't believe in anything at all, there's something admirable in that. And and I think, I I don't think it's necessarily that all people of faith loved this movie or that people who do not have faith or any spirituality hated it. I think there was something that kind of connected across the lines for a lot of people in that regard, just that level of commitment to something. And that's what really hit home for me. That's such a good point about bringing your own worldview into a movie. And I really think that makes all the difference. And that's the one thing, obviously, you know, Rotten Tomatoes doesn't account for, you know, I mean, it's talking about the quality of a movie, but a 
movie could have low quality in a objective terms, but really connect with you personally based on what you bring to it. Well, it's it's like our political episode a couple of weeks ago. We talked about a movie, The Unknown Known, where you know, and I think I made the I think it got edited out, but I made the comment that a lot of people didn't like the film because they were expecting a hatchet job on a figure they didn't like. Mm-hmm. And again, they're not wrong for that. You bring your own stuff and baggage and opinions and worldviews into a movie, and that's that 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 is a big part of your you know the final opinion on something. Yeah, I was the Corey Haim of my high school. So that's what I brought to Dream Little Dream. <laughs> Not the Corey Feldman? No, come on. That's funny. I had a best friend growing up, and I always looked at myself as the Corey Haim and him as the Corey Feldman. I think everybody thought of themselves as the Corey Haim. Yeah. <laughs> no one wanted to do There's a guy, him. Scott Tobias, who was with the AV Club at the time, and now I think is a free agent movie reviewer. But he wrote, Working from a script by Gary Witta, the Pews brothers, Albert and Allen, have made a stark affirmation of faith as a guiding light for a broken, lawless civilization. But to their credit, the film stops well short of proselytizing and richard roper says bold and innovative spiritually challenging and some heads get chopped off so i i I just i just really like this movie it's a good one well i think he gets into the to the heart of why it did work for so many people why audiences responded to it whereas critics may not have it's not proselytizing it's not preachy it's it's a movie you can connect with like i said but regardless of your your worldview all righty lance your number three let's talk about tom hanks okay t hanks thanks thanks david who can ever give a bad review to a tom hanks you can it's hard every generation has a small group of actors that define that era and i I think future generations will look back on this generation and say Tom Hanks Corey was one Hay- of the... Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his career has two very specific halves to it. There's the second half, which was the more serious Oscar-winning films like Forrest Gump, Saving Private Ryan, Philadelphia. And the first half was marked with the comedies, uh, Splash, Dragnet, The Money Pit. The next the next film we're going to talk about is one of those forgotten gems from that first half of Hanks' career. It's Joe Dante's 1989 film, The Burbs. Uh, 47% on Rotten Tomatoes. It follows a group of suburban neighbors and the paranoia that they experience after a family of eccentric neighbors moves into one of the houses in their cul-de-sac. Director Howard Hawks once said that a good movie is one that has three great scenes and no bad ones. And The Burbs is an amazing example of that to me. And and I want to be clear, there is a silliness to this movie. And when I think of this film, I don't think of an important message or the story arc of a particular character. I think of moments and quotes and specific performances. And this movie is dotted with just enough of those to keep this afloat. The chanting scene is one that comes to mind. Ray, you're chanting. Ray, Ray, look. Ray, unconscious chanting. You're chanting. I want to kill everyone. Satan is good. Satan is our pal. Ray, Ray. Reading the the reviews of this film on Rotten Tomatoes was to me a great reminder that and I'm talking to myself as much as anyone here that a lot of us have kind of forgotten how to have fun at the movies. That a movie being silly and fun is an admirable important and necessary thing. Uh, Hudson and I went to the Sundance Film Festival a few years ago and the level of pretentiousness there was just incredible. Everyone felt the need to act like a film professor after every movie and I remember one of the people in the group with us just after a few days I remember him making this comment he just said isn't it okay to just for a movie to just be fun? To me that's what The Burbs is and I Looking at Rotten Tomatoes, there were several critiques of the here. Uh, one of them was, this situation is hackneyed and the events are not credible. Another critic said, this film fails to rouse itself into any real conviction. Another said, it's hard to put your finger on exactly what's missing from this movie. I love that one because that is actually the job of a film critic. Completely <laughs> failed to do it. I feel like the reason that this movie failed to really get the acclaim I think it deserved, and this goes back to our Joe Dante conversation on last Two week's Two weeks episode. in a row. Shout out yeah. to Joe Dante. It strikes an unusual comic tone, a lot like Clue did, where I saw a a lot of critics label it as slapstick, but it's not really slapstick. 
On the other hand, it's not hyper-realistic either. It seems to find this strange middle ground that people couldn't really connect with in terms of the tone of the comedy. It's not a film you can put under a microscope and study in a film class. It either works for you or it doesn't. I think that plays under our discussion on why Joe Dante never really found the consistent long-term success he deserved. And despite the fact that this film had a 47% on Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score was actually 71%. So it did connect with audiences in a much better way. Yeah, this movie is, I just think it's brilliant and hilarious and really perfect. Like I wouldn't change, I mean, I might change, this is our second Corey uh, Feldman movie. It is. Which the thing that that critic was looking for that he couldn't figure out was missing was Corey Haim. (laughs) (laughs) I might change Corey Feldman looking at the camera at the end of this movie, but that's the only thing I would change about this movie. This is actually a pretty good Corey Feldman role, I will say. It's rare that you come across. He's just being a kid. Yeah, Yeah, it is. uh, Corey Feldman in this, uh, he was in, you know, the height of his friendship with Michael Jackson. And while Michael Jackson didn't visit the set, his uh, chimpanzee Bubbles did visit the set frequently. <laughs> Drive himself? Uh, <laughs> was eventually banned from the set for wrecking it constantly. <laughs> I, I, would, true story. I hope that there's some footage out there of Joe Dante just getting really upset about this chimpanzee. Or Tom Hanks it. just losing yeah. it. <laughs> this is a really fun movie. Yeah, this movie's hilarious. And also, I remember being like watching it as a kid and thinking the ending was really scary. Like It plays into the, these kind of fears by the end of the movie. But the other thing is, like, I would kind of disagree that it's just a fun movie because I think it does tap into something. I mean, it's still kind of a fun idea, but talking about your neighbors and can mm-hmm. you trust who lives next to you and how you're always making up stories in your head about what you think your neighbors are doing. Like, it taps into something a little deeper there. It does, but it does it in a fun way and it doesn't really land on a particular message. It Because on the one hand, at first, we think that the neighbors are right. Then we find out the neighbors are wrong. Then we find out the neighbors were right. right. It doesn't yeah, really yeah, yeah. land it. It's not trying to preach anything in particular. To me, it used that neighbor paranoia more as a springboard to tell a fun story, less than trying to tell a story to make a point about neighborly paranoia. This movie holds a special place in my heart. Maybe the last movie I saw with my mother. Oh, wow, really? Wow. Uh Jordan, number two. X-Files, I Want to Believe. This might be one of the closest critic and audience scores out there. Really? Critics is 31%, audience is 32 hmm. They want to believe that this is a good movie. Oh. They want to believe that it's just <laughs> yeah. slightly better than the critics did. <laughs> Directed by original creator of the X-Files, Chris Carter, and starring my dear friends, Mulder and Scully, it's the second X-Files movie, I Want to Believe, from 2008. The movie does not at all pick up where the series left us in 2002, but drops us instead into this weird world six years later. Scully is a doctor working at a Catholic hospital. Mulder is holed up at home eating sunflower seeds, throwing pencils, and I guess like more X-Filesy stuff, but definitely not with the FBI. A current FBI agent has gone missing, and a fresh crop of agents are hunting her down with the help of Billy Connolly as a psychic pedophile former priest. The agents decide they need to bury the FBI's hatchet and call in old spooky Mulder to assist in the case. Voila! Mulder and Scully are back in blue and ready to work. Oh yeah, and our favorite agents are together, living under the same roof, romantically no entwined. Way. It's kind of creepy. It was like finding out my mom and dad lived together, which they did for a long time. Time. Yeah. A little personal context here. I didn't just love the TV show. It's been an obsession. I have an ultra-rare 58 DVD special edition briefcase box set of the series. I have posters, t-shirts. I've read all the novels. I have companion books, lexicon books, season guidebooks, coffee table books, comic books, the official Magic the Gathering style card game, even, get this, the Mulder and Scully Barbies. Well, let's go a step further. You have a tattoo of X-Files on your body. I do also have a tattoo. <laughs> let's go a step further. You 
you had some reconstructive surgery to look more like Fox Scully. Mulder. No, Scully. Scully. Let's go even further. You got arrested, if I remember correctly, for stalking Chris Carter, the yeah. creator. Yeah. Jordan, I know you've had sex at least twice in your life. <laughs> Wait to see where this is going. Please keep but going. By your last forty-five seconds of what you're talking about, I don't know how that happened. Man, chicks dig this stuff. <laughs> Simply put, I'm an X file. That's with a PH. Like a cinephile, a person <laughs> passionate about cinema. X files can generally be split into two opposing camps. The shippers and the no-romos. Shippers uh, believe in and hope for an MSR. Relationshippers. The, it's a moldy right, exactly. relationship. That's the X-File internet acronym for moldy... Moldy? Moldy? <laughs> moldy skulls. <laughs> for Mulder Scully romance. I always thought that Mulder and Scully sounded like pirate names. Like, arr, Mulder and Scully. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a spinoff I'd like to do. Uh, no-romos, on the other hand, don't believe in and hope for an MSR. No-romos. <laughs> I personally identify as a no-romo shipper. Sad man. The relationship between Mulder and Scully is what actually had me hooked on the show. The paranormal, alien, black oil, monster of the week stuff is great, but it's not the main reason mm. it's the greatest television show of all time. Here's why this matters. As a shipper, I sat down to watch I Want to Believe, intending to spend time with my friends Mulder and Scully. Sure, I was excited about whatever case they might be working on and the gory, scary, weird stuff that comes along with it, and I really like that part of the movie. But I really just wanted to be with my characters and that's exactly what I got after the conclusion of the series it would have been impossible to just jump back to agent Mulder and agent Scully on the lookout for alien conspiracies and for a character driven shipper like myself that would have been totally unsatisfying the movie's far from flawless and I understand the disappointment from the plot obsessed no romos and casual <laughs> fans of the show in the 90s the good news is they've got 202 episodes you can stream anytime you want on Netflix plus the first movie whether intentional or not this movie is not for them. But for those of us that are shippers that want to further investigate the relationship between our two favorite FBI characters, well, that's why they put the I in FBI. <laughs> Well, so Jordan, first off, that was that was painful to listen to. Um, now that we've driven most of our listeners away, I wanted to ask you this. Why do you believe the critics didn't like this film? I think critics and audiences wanted to sit down and feel like they were watching the show again. And I don't feel like that was possible. I think they, were, they just had this narrow view on what this movie was supposed to be. It's my understanding and what I got from the trailer and stuff is that the X-Files TV show, there's the kind of Monster of the Week shows, and then right. there's the larger story shows. Right. The ones that always interested me more were the larger story shows and it was my understanding that this movie and what it kind of looked like was uh, just a monster of the week show that it didn't feel like it was the bigger kind of alien thing that i was most intrigued by right it, it was it's not that at all they right. don't talk about aliens at all and i think that's what people wanted people wanted right. the, yeah, the yeah. myth arc shows whereas i wanted the characters really? funny story this movie came out the same week that i got married and then went on my honeymoon so i did not see this movie in the theater because wow. I, I was too busy doing wedding sex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, because I got scabies. And so I, wow. there wasn't very much sex going on. Is that like leprosy? That sounds like a really old disease. Uh, yeah, yeah kind of. Uh, <laughs> my number two rotten film that I love is The Village. 43% on Rotten Tomatoes. The consensus is The Village is appropriately creepy, but Shyamalan's signature twist ending did. 
disappoints. So the village is the story of a small town in the 19th century, or village, if you will, whose members have each gone through a difficult loss. They've closed themselves off from the surrounding towns in order to live a peaceful life. And for the most part, they do, as we experience this Jane Austen-ish town of laughter and feasts and dances and weddings. There are creatures in the woods that surround them, those that we do not speak of. They've learned to live at peace with the creatures, agreeing to never go into the woods. And in return, the creatures never come into their village. But things are turned upside down when the creatures begin breaking their peace treaty. It stars Bryce Dallas Howard as a strong-willed blind girl named Ivy and Joaquin Phoenix as her quiet but fearless love interest, Lucius. This movie succeeds on so many levels as a love story, as a monster movie, and as an exploration on human nature and whether or not it's worth it to choose safety over freedom, which, as you might remember, is something that was on all of our minds in the early 2000s. But that allegory seems to have gone unnoticed by critics and moviegoers. Shyamalan is all about tone and pacing. His dialogue is so intentional. His actor's performance is so subtle. He takes his time with his shots, and a lot of people complain about it, but it's one of my favorite things about this movie, the way the camera lingers on the creatures. He never goes for the easy jump scare. Instead, chooses to let you see them in their full glory, making it even more eerie. Roger Ebert gave it one star and said of the twist, he talked about the twist, to call it an anti-climax would be an insult not only to climaxes, but to prefixes. It's so witless, in fact, that when you do discover the secret, we want to rewind the film so we don't know the secret anymore. And then keep on rewinding and rewinding until we're back at the beginning and can get up from our seats and walk backward out of the theater and go down the up escalator and watch the money spring from the cash register into our pockets. He really went all out with that. Yeah. I think I think he also complains in that review about how like subdued or solemn everyone is. I yeah. think he felt like it was played too quietly, yeah, which is we, something that I love about the movie. Oh, absolutely. Actors are often typecast, and, and Shyamalan is one of the few directors I've ever seen who have become typecast. If he doesn't make Sixth Sense or put a big twist at the end of the movie, we say he failed because he didn't make the movie we wanted him to make, which is absurd. Yeah. Uh, the first time I saw this movie, I didn't like it. I was with everybody else in the theater. Everybody walked out annoying, grumbling, and oh, I didn't like the twist. <laughs> and Hudson, I remember talking to you, and you actually called me out on it. You're like, why are you so obsessed with this idea of a twist? Like, why is he obligated to put a twist at the end of the movie that, that you love? And, you know, it occurred to me that was a strange thing to do. I went back and watched the movie and I knew the twist at that point. I wasn't wondering what it was going to be. It wasn't going to be this big surprise at the end. And I thought it was great. Yeah, it might be a movie that's better on second viewing. It absolutely is. You can't go into this movie and hold directors to this standard like people do with Shyamalan. And I think he's made some bad movies. He's made some great movies. Spoiler, we might be getting into another one. In his a minute, worst. But shut it. Definitely <laughs> not. Definitely not his worst. His worst that I've seen. <laughs> but but he has been he has been put on this you know held to this standard which I, I can't ever remember a director being held to which is just really ridiculous yeah you could say he kind of painted himself into that corner but I don't think that's fair either I think uh, he just made the movies that he loved right um, and just people expected something from him and, and we want him to keep to making that movie over and right. over again which yeah. is ridiculous who else do we want that from director wise yeah, yeah. it's it's what ridiculous I'm, what I'm confused about is why why are people mad about this twist is it because they saw it coming and so it was lame or because it was so simple that they didn't see it coming and felt dumb. I do remember figuring the twist out during the movie and that did, and I was mad about that. So really, what, what's that? I mean, is that a right, fair yeah, thing? Yeah. That, I figured it out. You didn't do your job. Yeah. Right. Who cares? Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it's it's a good movie regardless and to tie an entire two hours of a film up based on what happens in the last minute yeah. is a little yeah, ridiculous. I think this is probably his most well-crafted film in terms of not only the score, which is phenomenal, but just the camera work and the acting and, and what 
what he does. He has grown as a director in this film compared to Sixth Sense, which is, I think, maybe his best movie, but it's not as aesthetically pleasing as this, I guess, is that's not yeah. the word I'm looking yeah, for. Yeah, movies beautiful. I think yeah. it's one of the most beautiful movies yeah, I've ever seen. Yeah, it's gorgeous, and he does, and the, it's, the first hour and a half is very high tension. And I didn't love the ending, but I also didn't hate the movie. I thought this is a great movie, and I thought it continued his stream of success. I think had this movie come out first or second, that if he had done this first or second, that critics would have embraced it the way they did his first few films. Yeah. Um, and I do think his career took a sharp downturn after this movie, but I think he was still at the top of his game here. Gibby, your number two. My number two film will be one that not all four friends agree on. This is the 2014 action, romantic, hilarious comedy, This Means War, directed by McGee. You know it's a good movie because the dude only has one name. <laughs> that, that alone bothers <laughs> yeah, me that... enough to not watch this movie. <laughs> Uh, it's starring Chris Pine, uh, Tom Hardy, in a role where you can actually understand what Tom Hardy is saying, and uh, Reese Witherspoon. This film has a 26% Rotten Tomatoes score, so this is the lowest of my three choices. The story of the movie is these two CIA agents, played by Chris Pine and Tom Hardy, are buddies and partners, and they both individually meet a uh, female, played by Reese Witherspoon, and they both start dating her, and then they find out they're dating the same woman. What? Hijinks ensue. That sounds like a terrible premise and sounds like... Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, sure Sounds does. Sounds like a lot of movies that have been done before. But I think this movie does it well. It's fun. It's well acted. It's got three very charismatic actors. I do want to add this, that I love these three movies that I've picked because I own all three of them. I'm the only one of us that owns all three of them. Not true. Not true. I own all three. Oh, not does. true. You said you didn't. No, I did. Give Even me, uh, uh, Let's assume that is true. I'm not following the point. You don't that. love a movie if you don't own it. That's, That's rule. also not true. Not true. Okay. <laughs> this is a film where I saw before reading any reviews. Reviews hadn't yeah. had been embargoed. And so I saw it, and so I went in fresh. and <laughs> Embargoed. <laughs> yeah. And the great movie. Treaty of 2000. Typically, when movies typically when movie reviews are embargoed, it's because they're not going to get very good reviews. So, uh, but this, maybe this, this is, is a lesson ahead. to you, Gibby, that you shouldn't read reviews before you go in and see a movie. It probably is a lesson. Uh, I'll probably I'll, like all I'll, the movies. I'm going to defend Gibby here. I Thanks, actually Hudson. really like this movie as well. That um, doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> It is co-written and produced by Simon Kinberg, who's one of my favorite screenwriters slash producers, most uh, notably uh, known for the X-Men franchise. Uh, but he broke in with the script Mr. and Miss Smith, which had a similar tone to this, which is action comedy, which I'm a real sucker for. And I thought this movie was really funny, and it had some parts that was really great. My son, especially, we watched Mr. and Miss Smith the other day, and he's like, what happened to the paintball scene? Because he had gotten these two movies mi- uh-huh. mixed up. There's a great paintball scene in this where they're going on a date, Reese Witherspoon and Tom Hardy... And it's basically the dodgeball scene from Billy Madison, but with paintball, where he's yeah. like this spy. So he's going around like killing kids with like being incredible at. Yeah, it's really funny. At paintball. It's yeah. very well shot. The theory I heard on this movie is that it got a 26% because it's horrible. <laughs> That's what I heard. I haven't, I, I didn't see this, and I'm actually really proud of that. Um, and I can say that because I looked at the poster for this movie, and it looks, what it looked like was a poster you'd see in an actually like good, funny movie where they're trying to satire what a bad movie poster would yeah. look like. Their backs are it not. Looks against each other it, yeah. it looks like they their spent arms. all of all of about seven seconds in the advertising department coming up with this post like <laughs> what if they're both holding guns and she's in the middle and blah, let's go get lunch <laughs> <laughs> this may not be your bag of bag yeah. of bag of movies yeah i mean it, you, it <laughs> may not be your bag of movies you know i'm not saying this is a great movie yeah uh, this but just it was, happens to be the type right. of movie i really enjoy yeah, it was critically savage and i'm not quite sure why i mean it it wasn't trying to be you know die hard part two or anything like that what like was die it hard trying to be i think it was just five. trying to be an enjoyable romantic comedy it's an action comedy type movie it'd yeah. be cool if it tried to be good yeah it is good uh, it's got great action i mean say what you will about the terribly named g but guy knows how to film action 
Leah Rosen of The Rap writes, she sums it up nicely, In the dictionary, frothy is defined as being light and entertaining, but of little substance. This means war is a totally frothy film, and that's a good thing. Sometimes substance is overrated. So it's not a deep huh. movie. Not sure that's the best review to defend it. <laughs> that was Sometimes, the best well, one it's better find. than every other movie. Sometimes every other being good is overrated. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you want to just watch a terrible movie. This yeah. is it. Um, Who needs quality? <laughs> Rebert, if there's anything I hate more than a stupid action comedy, it's an incompetent competent stupid action comedy <laughs> you dug deep for that <laughs> <laughs> there are about five actors that i would watch in anything and this film has two of them reese witherspoon uh no chris pratt and tom hardy i think they're really interesting chris, Pratt's uh, chris, in this? chris pine, chris pine. <laughs> so he has three <laughs> lance number two my number two movie is legend of bagger vance robert redford's 2000 film a 43 percent on rotten tomatoes but a 65 percent audience score the film follows the story of a down and out golfer played by matt damon a psychologically scarred war veteran who is pulled into a major tournament being held in his hometown a mystical caddy played by will smith enters his <laughs> life to help him get his swing and metaphorically his life back on track um this film has a, a kind of a purity and beauty to it that takes you to a place that while it may never have truly existed as portrayed in the film it's a place you wish did because you'd want to live there is that place mean, uh the golf course uh, in savannah georgia it, yeah. It, it, yeah it's it's that kind of mythical beautiful town it's also about this sport that people love and um we were, were recording bowling. this what bowling <laughs> No. Uh, we're recording this the day after the Cubs have won the World Series for the first time in 108 years. And, Baseball. And it, there, there was something about watching that that reminded me of this film because there's something about a thing, whether it's music or a movie or a, a hobby, that a big group of people loving together, there's just something cool and magical about that. A woman. <laughs> like two <Chris> CIA <laughs> agent, agents <laughs> loving one woman. <laughs> I'm not going to say parts of it aren't overly sentimental. They are. But it all works somehow because it approaches everything with such a purity of heart and, and an excellent score. Music score helps as well. Uh, the critiques of this movie were confusing, and in the summary on Rotten Tomatoes, it says the line, some critics are offended by how the film glosses over issues of racism. So I'm about to get a little pissed off here. <gasps> I want to talk about one such review, which I'm going to title the stupidest movie review I've ever read in my life. <laughs> if you are aspiring to become a film critic, I want you to pay attention because this epit epitomizes every possible way a film critic can fail in their job. I'm not going to give you the name of the film reviewer other than to tell you he is an approved Rotten Tomatoes reviewer who writes for his own website. I'm going to give you two quotes from this. This claptrap is so busy congratulating itself for featuring a black actor in a prominent role that no one ever realizes that the nostalgia is for a place in an era that never existed, or that the claps on the back are for a character who revives extravagant racist stereotypes rather than surpassing them. Has it, for example, occurred to anyone that Bagger would not even be, have been illegally allowed to walk on Theron's golf course in Depression-era Savannah? First off, completely unjustified claim that there was some sort of grandstanding by anyone in ca casting Will Smith because he was black. Is it possible they just thought he was a good actor, maybe? Um, he was like the biggest actor of the time, too, yeah, in year 2000. Yeah. Second, I researched his claim about the caddy. That's actually false. There were black caddies dating back to the Depression era and even in the 1800s. So here's my favorite line in the review. Even if you can see past the politics, which you shouldn't, it's never about anything except gentrified athleticism as a spiritual plane. Even if you can see past the politics, which you shouldn't. This is the most arrogant, self-serving statement in the <laughs> history of film criticism because this guy is not only telling you what the movie should have done, he's telling you are wrong for not walking into it with the same expectations that he did about what it should have done. Because here's the thing. I can see past the politics. You know why? It's not a f***ing political movie. <laughs>
What many reviewers forget is that an artist is not required to get inside the reviewer's head and tell a movie dealing with the issues they're concerned with at that particular moment. That would be like me walking up to the Mona Lisa and saying, yeah, well, why didn't Da Vinci deal with the oppression of women that was going on all around him? <laughs> Here's the funny part. He completely fails to understand what Bhagavad Vance was. It's based on an old Hindu epic and scriptural poem called the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad, Bhagavad Vance. Get it? Yeah. Huh. In this poem, a deity comes down to help a battle-weary prince who has given up on life and lost his way. So Bhagavad Vance isn't an oppressed man in this context. He's not a man at all. He represents something more like a deity or a god. But this reviewer was so self-absorbed when he wrote this review that he overlooks all of that. He is right to say that racial issues and injustice are important and need to be dealt with, but only when an artist intends to deal with those issues. What you don't get to do is walk into a work not intended to deal with a particular issue and tell the artist what his intention should have been. Unless your goal is to be an arrogant prick, in which case that's exactly what you should do. <laughs> this review was written 16 years ago, and I hope in this time this guy has learned how to become a film critic. Roger Ebert, a good critic who really liked this movie, has often said that a movie isn't about what it's about, but how it's about it. And what he means by that is that your starting point when you approach a film should be to accept what the artist is trying to do, then critique the film based on whether that artist successfully hits the target. That is the job of a film critic. It is unfortunately a job that many of the critics of this film failed to do because they couldn't get out of their own way. Wow. Drop the mic. That makes me want to watch this movie more than anything this movie has done to make me want to watch this movie. That review? No, Lance's <laughs> passion. Um, right. Angry. I'll tell you what, the thing about this movie is it's hard to make a bad sports movie. Like oh, sports I'm movies, disagree with that. there are very, you can disagree, Thank uh, you. but there are certain things about a sports movie that are just natural to storytelling. So an underdog right. character overcoming adversity, a clear win at the end of the movie, a clear goal. I mean, there's, there's these types of things that just are what make for great cinema. I never actually saw this movie. I always went into when it came out and I figured it was something I would like, but I just didn't probably because I hate Robert Redford in the 2000s, but now I like Whoa. Robert Redford. Whoa, why? There was about you... a four-year period where I didn't like Robert Redford. You guys were on the outs? Yeah, we were on the outs. What happened? I believe Redford still said he liked you during that period. Yeah, he did, yeah. I remember. That's what, yeah. was, that's what was most sad. We just had a misunderstanding. <laughs> I actually bought, I actually purchased this movie, a hard copy. Really? In order to watch it because I respect Lance so much and because we like a lot of the same movies but I didn't have time to watch it you made a funny point Jordan and this is kind of ironic because I just ripped on the poster for another movie this does look like it's like would show on the Hallmark channel oh it, like the, yeah the poster, <laughs> it, it the looks so terrible, terrible. Yeah, it I was yeah. gonna I was gonna watch it the other night my wife and I were actually gonna get to watch a movie together which is rare and I, I said we could watch this Legend of Bagger Vance and I showed her the DVD cover and she she's not a strongly opinionated woman she's but like, she was like Meh. nope <laughs> not watching that that looks awful Jordan let's talk about your number Number one pick, which is Stephen Elliott's 2000 film Eye of the Beholder, coming in at a soaring 9%. <laughs> Stephen? I'm positive because I've heard him say his name. He would know? He would. <laughs> what, what if he's wrong? Yeah, he's just tricking people. Based on the reviews like of this no. film, there are a lot of people that think he's probably wrong about how he pronounces his name. Ewan McGregor plays the I, a digital surveillance field officer in an undisclosed Wait, government agency. Wait, his name agency. is I? E-Y-E? No, we don't, name. we don't know his, his name. name. We don't know oh. his name for the whole movie. He's referred to as okay, the cool. I. Cool, all right. Which I'm not even sure he's referred to as in the movie. It's just in the script he's called the I and in the original book. His current Deep. assignment leads him to a mysterious and intriguing woman named Joanna. The Eye is accompanied by a figment of his imagination in the form of his estranged daughter. When he witnesses Joanna murdering another suspect, the Eye feels a need to protect her rather than expose her. This sets off a years-long obsession in which the Eye plays the role of a sort of twisted guardian angel to Joanna. This movie might be even more hated than Dream a Little Dream, perhaps because the critics thought it had great 
great potential. The only nice thing I've ever heard anyone say about this movie is that it looks great. And they aren't wrong. It looks really, really great. They're just wrong about everything else. Writer-director Stephen Elliott was told from the outset that this movie couldn't be made in America. It didn't fit the American ideal and was too amoral. That sounds like somebody that's making an excuse that made a terrible movie and they're like, oh, yo, America just yeah. won't understand it. They were like, it's immoral. I don't get it. Uh, well, that, that, he didn't... <laughs> Everyone sounds like Jonah, overseas sounds is like an Italian Jonah chef again. <laughs> chef Boyardee. <laughs> In his defense, hey, that's, that's not how he referred to it. It wasn't. He didn't say, "Oh, the audience didn't understand it." It was that he couldn't get the funding for it because everybody was telling him that it was it the would movie be terrible. The script was amoral and, and the book was amoral and that it wouldn't work. By the way, Gibby's watching the trailer right now. So I'm like, <laughs> yeah, this really, looks, this a, looks really good, guys. He's, he's kind of cramming here at the last second. This is a movie without a moral compass. It's not interested in telling you what's right or wrong or where the point of no return is. It's holding up a mirror to this morally ambiguous side of us that rarely gets uncovered. It's a movie asking questions about voyeurism and technology and obsession and the threshold of love. As we've talked about on the podcast before, I and we generally love movies that ask questions instead of answering them. When I first saw this movie in the theater, I was hooked. I went back three or four times to see it on the big screen again. It kept pounding these questions directly into me, as if the movie was made specifically <laughs> for me. Don't laugh at that. Give me <laughs> they like, oh, here comes that Corey Feldman fella again. <laughs> I was Corey Haim. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it also asked questions about how we replace the things we've lost, why we obsess over the things we obsess about. And strangely, in turn, this movie has become an obsession for me for the past 16 years. I'm not sure I know any other person until now that has ever seen this movie. Just me and you? Yeah, so I've Lance, been obsessed with think? it for so Go long. Go for it. My criticism Lance, you as an American just can't understand <laughs> it. <laughs> this is the problem I had with this movie. First off, it's redundant. McGregor's character is following Ashley Judd around for two hours, and it just it got to a point where I just felt like I was watching the same sequence over and over and over and over again. How a film dispenses information to the viewer is is very important. It can make or break a movie. And we talked about Shyamalan earlier. With, so let's let's take Sixth Sense as an example. If they were to tell us Bruce Willis was dead at the beginning of the movie, it becomes a totally different movie, right? In Eye of the Beholder, they keep hinting at these dark pasts that McGregor and Judd have, but the mistake they make is that they don't reveal it all until the end, and there's nothing gained in doing that. And what I found is what it, it actually hurt the film, because for me to care about why these characters seem so screwed up, I need to know what screwed them up. Otherwise, I'm not invested in the chase. As a result, I lost interest in both of them. And when they finally reveal everything, I was already done. Like, I, I didn't care anymore. The one thing that was funny about this movie, look at the uh, reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. It had some of the funniest reviews I've ever seen. Jeffrey Anderson said, During one scene, some characters take a break by watching a video of Roger Corman's great 1960 The Wasp Woman. I suggest you do the same. <laughs> Brian McKay said, On the bright side, I only lost an hour and a half of my life watching this piece of shit. <laughs> Unlike those involved in the making of it who lost months. Orlando Sentinel critic Jay Boyer had a one-word review. just says, pointless. <laughs> that was the review. Yeah, there's a lot, a whole lot of hate for this movie. I mean, part of my problem in loving this movie is that it's hard for me to really explain why I am so obsessed with it. I guess I'm more sad than um, surprised that nobody else sees it the way that I do. You know there are good movies about voyeurism out there. Yeah, I like some of them. Well, it, you know, it's like we've talked about before. There's a subjectivity to film. I don't think anybody ever needs to apologize for the fact of maybe connect with them unless it's Gibby and this means war um, <laughs> but but no I get it there, there's, a, there's this is a very stylized movie too and that yeah. was another issue I had with it it felt like they were so focused on the style at some points that they didn't move the story along and there were so many long periods where this movie just dragged and dragged and dragged but they were clearly still really obsessed with making sure it looked cool and did cool mm -hmm. visual things had they focused a little more on the former and less on the latter I think the film would have worked better I think it speaks to a, what, seeing a movie in a, at a point in time and the subjectivity because that's just how it was for me and I've never been able to let it go. My number one.
Speed Racer, the 2008 film written and directed by the Wachowskis. It is based on the popular Japanese animated series of the late 60s about a young race car driver named Speed as he attempts to navigate the crooked world of the racing circuit while trying to decide if he's going to stay with the family race car business or branch out on his own. The movie was not met with overwhelming praise. Rex Reed of the New York Observer said, I can sit through just about anything, but I draw the line at two hours and 15 minutes of fuchsia vomit. To suffer through this kind of hell, movie critics deserve combat pay. Yet, I loved this movie from the first time I saw it in the theater, and it remains one of my favorite films of all time. The Wachowskis really swung for the fences with this one, and it's something they do with all their films. They take risks. They hold nothing back. A lot of people take issue with the visual storytelling of the film, and it's really something that hadn't been tried before and still haven't seen since. The racing scenes were all shot on green screen, with the actors sitting in CGI cars, but if you're willing to go with it, you pretty quickly get emerged into the world. Well, let's be clear about something, too. They didn't do this just for the hell of it. They did it because it was a throwback to the cartoons. And this goes back to what I was saying about critics earlier. You have to respect what a director is trying to do and whether or not they hit that target. And what they were trying to do was give you the same visual style that the cartoons did. So while these critics are, you know, ripping it to shreds because they didn't like the look of it, there was a very understandable reason why they went with that look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, no, a lot of the scenes were pulled straight from the cartoon and they really were trying to play to that and make it into a real world type of thing. While it's impressive technologically... Uh, it's even more impressive in its storytelling. For a kid's movie, there is some amazing multi-level storytelling going here. And I feel like a lot of people miss the point of the film. The story takes on extra depth when you realize it's an allegory for the Wachowskis' careers. You get such a real picture of the Wachowskis' struggle here as Speed battles the system again and again as they're always one step ahead of him attempting to extinguish his light. And where the filmmakers land on this discussion is so powerful. For one, Speed chooses his family, the ones that have been there for him the whole time, the ones that have invested in him him unconditionally. The ones that see his driving as art, they are the ones that really matter to him by the end. And the second major point they make when Speed is frustrated, thinking he'll never win, wanting to give up, and he argues. Racing hasn't changed and it never will. His mentor character, Racer X, responds with, It doesn't matter if racing never changes. What matters is if we let racing change us. And that's what the Wachowskis are trying to get across here about life, but specifically about the film industry. As frustrating as Hollywood is, the point is to not let it change you, to keep creating your arc in a unique way. We don't have to bring down the system, we just have to survive it. One of my favorite critics, Film Crit Hulk, the all caps talking in third person film critic, also called it one of his favorite movies of all time, saying, the Wachowskis, perhaps more than any other filmmakers, suffer from the pains of being pure at heart. They make cinema that is so genuine and jaw-droppingly sincere that it can't help but skew right into most people's this is corny territory. Their big loving ideas come onto the screen completely undistilled by cynicism. But if Hulk had one creative standard of all filmmakers, it is the request that one cinema be honest to what it really wants, what it really believes, and what it's really saying, which all just means that Hulk adores the Wachowskis. So after I saw it back in 2008, I think I saw it the first weekend and I probably texted you guys and said, that was pretty terrible. I did not like it. And then you guys came back a week week later saying how it was awesome and one of the best movies you'd ever seen. I appreciated the look of it, and I can understand what they tried to do. It's just that a lot of the actors are so over the top in the movie 
parts of it are unwatchable. But then I went back and watched it again probably two or three years ago, and while I don't love it, I think it's a good film. Hudson and I have a long history of disagreeing on movies like this, and when he told me he loved this movie, I went into the theater knives out, just ready to shred this thing. <laughs> I walked out the exact opposite. I thought this film was fantastic. The opening and closing races of this movie are master classes at how to tell a story on film. In the first race, they tell us the entire tale of this family, Speed Racer's family. Every character, conflict, goal, obstacle, using the race as a backdrop, and it is, I'll use the word brilliant. It, it absolutely is, and it perfectly sets the entire story up. And in the final race, they bring all the elements of the film together that they've been building on for two hours in this remarkably unifying, satisfying ending. This feels like a film that has so many wonderful things working at its core that was wrapped up in packaging that people didn't like. And it's that core that I focus on because admittedly, there is some visuals in this that can be annoying. It's it, yeah. It's got this Japanime look. It's in your face. It's extreme. It's It feels kind of gaudy at times. You have to have the ability to disappear into it, which I think right. a lot of people don't. Hudson actually recommended this movie to me right when we first started talking about making movies together. And I had very low expectations and was sure that it would be terrible. But I was wrong, Hudson. I was wrong. And right I about I, every other movie I recommend yes, that you hated. <laughs> this is the only one that yeah. we've agreed on. Yeah, and if you're listening to this and you're you're hearing, I mean, even the title, can, Speed Racer, it sounds stupid. I would I would really recommend giving this movie a shot and being open-minded about it because it is a very rewarding experience. Yeah, you have to be really open-minded, too. I mean, <laughs> we, we can't stress that enough. Yeah, we can't stress <laughs> it. I actually got a little emotional at the end of this movie, like Hudson did reading his notes earlier. That's Shocker. every movie you've ever yeah. seen. <laughs> How shocking. I got freaked out and I cried a yeah. little. I got, I got emotional and Speed Racer, but not like I did in my number one most rotten movie. Oh, here we go. Give me your number one. This is the 2004 romantic comedy Fifty First Dates. I'd bang my head against the mic right now, but it wouldn't sound good to the <laughs> listeners. So Fifty First Dates, the 2004 Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore team up again, uh, their second film together. Uh, it's about a guy who meets a girl who has short-term memory loss, and every day she forgets who he is. They fall in love during their first meeting, or they hit it off, and then she forgets who he is the next day, so he has to keep making her fall in love with him. Yeah, I found myself wishing I had short-term memory loss right after I watched this movie. <laughs> he had that one written down. No, I didn't. <laughs> I wondering how many of the critic reviews yeah. use oh, that. Oh, no, there's yeah. a, lot. a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. I wish I could forget the movie. <laughs> I was bored after the first day. So, <laughs> so my other films that I've discussed, I like, I really like and enjoy them. But Fifty First Dates is a film that I love. Uh, and, and, and again, I'm not saying it's a great movie. It's, it's not. There's definitely problems with the film, but for whatever reason, it just hits me on an emotional level that I really like. It has a Rotten Tomato score of 44%. Just and not as bad as you would think. No, yeah. it's really not that low. I mean, it's one of actually one of his better reviews few films uh, on the Adam Sandler filmography. This is just, I just think this film's so sweet and just funny, and it's got Sandler and Barrymore at their most charming. There's never a time that I watch it that I don't have a huge lump in my throat at the end scene. I was wondering where that lump was going to be. (laughs) 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 This movie is so frustrating to me because I think it's such a brilliant setup. The sweet stuff plays so well, because I'm a fan of romantic comedies, and I just wish that they didn't do the, the terrible dumb jokes and lame kind of over-the-top characters that killed this movie for me. Yeah, those characters are terrible, but the love story is just so true to me and I think it makes up for... Yeah, because this has really happened in real life ever. I thought you liked the movie. It was. (laughs) What side are you on? It was too real for me. That's why I didn't like 
It was just yeah. the realism. Too much to like reality. I, my problem here is that I feel like there's a string of Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore movies now. And it feels like Hollywood has now come up with every possible permutation of how these two people could fall in love. It's like they got a team of scientists together, charged them with creating a list of every way it could happen. And now they're just working their way through that list. Like I imagine this Hollywood executive like, what if he was a painter and she got her soul transferred into a paintbrush and they met that way. It's gold. They've only been in three, <laughs> mo- they've only been in three movies together. They've only that's, fell in love three times. That's enough. And that's three too well, many. No, because in the this one, they terrible. fall in love 50 times. That's yeah, true. There was a time, probably a 10-year period, where I really look forward to every Adam Sandler movie that came out. Except uh, they're making boatloads of money. Yeah, they used to. Now they're straight to Netflix. Last right, two. but they're, oh, make, sure they're Netflix's biggest earners. Oh, please, America, I'm begging you. Stop. <laughs> stop this madness. Here's yeah, the, his movies now are terrible. Here's the biggest question I had. Was if spam actually funded the movie. They talk about spam a lot. Yeah. There's a giant spam pickup truck that drives through, and the whole f-ing movie felt like spam. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think spam is a cultural thing in Hawaii. Don't don't get me wrong. I actually like spam. <laughs> Spam's a cultural That's thing a in Hawaii? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know the history behind it. But it's a big kind of import really? to Hawaii spam. Yeah. I did not know that. I couldn't figure out why this was any better or any worse than any other movie like this. It just felt like another stupid, silly romantic comedy that doesn't connect with people like me. I actually did get sad in one point. I don't think it was the same When as it yours. started? No, not when, not when it started. That was my suspension of disbelief that I couldn't believe that I was actually <laughs> watching this movie. Well, um, to answer one of your things about like what's what's different about this movie, we'll let film critic Rebert say this somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> This movie is sort of an experiment for Sandler. He reveals the warm side of his personality and leaves behind the hostility, anger, and gross-out humor. This is a kinder and gentler Adam Sandler. You'd think it'd be hard to construct an art for a story that starts fresh every day, but the screenplay ingeniously uses videotape to solve that problem, so Lucy gets a briefing every morning on what she missed and makes daily notes in a journal about her strange romance with Henry. The movie doesn't have the complexity and depth of Groundhog Day, but as an entertainment, it's ingratiating and lovable. And I think that sums it up pretty well. This is just, to me, a sweet movie. I mean, I love people falling in love, and this one, you just do it daily, and just, I don't know. I like it, guys. I guess my issue is that uh, true love is a lie. Yeah, and that's a, a cruel, good point. cruel, vicious tease. <laughs> the only thing that kept me from turning this movie off was watching how much fun Sean Astin was having playing his character in this movie. Yeah. Did he did he play Samwise Gamgees? Mr. Sandler! Yeah, the lisp was a bit much, though. It's all too much. <laughs> all right, Lance, you're number one. Number one, we're going back to uh, Mr. Shyamalan, Lady in the Water, 2004, got a 24% on Rotten Tomatoes, follows the story of a superintendent of an apartment building, played by Paul Giamatti, who rescues a young woman, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, from the pool he maintains and discovers she's a character from a bedtime story who was trying to get home. Working with other tenants in the building, he fights to protect her from the creatures determined to stop her journey. Uh, this film is beautifully shot, has a wonderful score, excellent performances, but it's the theme of the movie that really connected with me, which is about the power of story and how all of the tenants start finding their role in said story. And while it's very much about the two main characters and their journey, it's also about each tenant struggling to find where they fit in this tale, and I really, really loved that idea. Uh, unfortunately, I was one of the few who did love that I- that idea, as this movie was critically despised, and audiences were actually pretty evenly split on it, which surprised me. Uh, the audience score was a 49%. Interestingly enough, it actually rated higher than any other M. Night Shyamalan film with test audiences. More often than not, I tend to agree with critics, but there are times where I don't. Even when I don't, I can often see their point. There's, like I've said, we've said many times on this show, there's a, there's a subjectivity to film, and not everyone is going to agree, and there are valid perspectives I can 
and appreciate it even if I don't agree with him. What's consistently perplexed me about this movie is how poor a job its critics have done in explaining what was so bad about it. And I think there's a reason why. Before I get to the specific criticisms, let me explain a couple of things about it. First off, this was a bedtime story that Shyamalan wrote for his children. So it's inherently a fairy tale that is tilted towards kids. The same Sundance Film Festival trip I mentioned earlier, I remember a couple of guys making fun of this movie. It had just come out. And they were, they were mocking a specific scene in which Giamatti's character needs information from one of the tenants, an, an elderly woman. And before she'll give him the information, she forces him to lay on the couch and pretend he's a child before she'll tell him what he needs to know. And this scene to me was absolutely key to this movie because it was Shyamalan saying to us, if you don't become like a child and strip away the overly critical cloud that adulthood has shrouded you in, you won't understand this story. There's one tenant who dies in this movie. Guess what that tenant does for a living? Movie critic. Movie critic. He's overly cynical, unwilling to engage in the story, and he pays the ultimate price for it. And the symbolism there is obvious. Well, that to me is annoying because he almost makes it critic proof. He's like, if you don't like my movie, you're like a film critic. Or he's making a point. No, he's, well, yeah. okay. Shamalan picks on critics because he knows they can't get out of the mindset that one is required in to, to understand and appreciate this story. And I felt like he knew this story was going to get critically panned before he ever made it. So what did some of the critics say? And remember, these are criticisms of a bedtime fairy tale. Utterly juvenile, unconvincing <laughs> scenarios, far-fetched, breathtaking in its absurdity. And I, I'm not sure if critics were misled into thinking this was a documentary, but bedtime stories and fairy tales are often marked by being juvenile since therefore, you know, juveniles. Far-fetched and unconvincing scenarios are pretty common in fairy tales. I will say one thing in defense of the critics because I know Jordan is about to jump down my throat on this. <laughs> this was a very poorly advertised film. I think it would have done served them better had they advertised it as the fairy tale it was and geared it more towards kids. And I think what happened was a lot of people thought they were walking into Sixth Sense or something more adult-oriented. And so they were taken off guard by what they actually got. And that is actually understandable. I 100% agree with you, Lance, but I also don't think it's a great movie. I enjoyed this movie and I especially defended it when it first came out because I was such a huge fan of Shyamalan. <laughs> so huge, I can't pronounce his name. <laughs> However, I, I read the, the book about the making of this film. It's called The Man Who Heard Vo Voices and it's a fascinating look uh, at just filmmaking in general. But it talks a lot about what happened in the making of this film. For mm -hmm. one, uh, he wrote the screenplay and he had such a successful run before this. He was expecting the Disney execs to just flip over it and when they didn't like it, he's like, well, I'm going to take my script elsewhere. Warner Brothers ended up picking up this movie to make it and I think what we're dealing with in this movie is and it kind of shows in the character that M. Night plays in this movie which he plays mm -hmm. a character who writes this book who holds like the secret to like saving the world he's basically. like the savior of yeah, the planet it's yeah. 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 yeah there and, are a lot of things in the book that people don't want to hear is a line from the movie <laughs> and so there's a lot uh, and so that's kind of where I think M. Night's mindset was here was he was just giving too much power no one questioning him the result of that I think this movie kind of goes off the rails a little bit uh, and let me let me say that those are all fair criticisms um, I'm also not saying this is a great movie I'm not saying everybody should love this movie I get there are flaws in it yeah I don't think it's 24% on Rotten Tomatoes bad though yeah I think the, I think the majority of people did not understand what he was attempting to do which is fair to say I mean well, it is, all right Jordan let me have it it might be the most bloated <laughs> self-important movie I've ever seen I absolutely hated this movie I wanted to like it I don't remember seeing any trailers so don't pin that on me I didn't think it was juvenile I, I don't think I agree with any of those critics but my biggest complaint about the movie which we've already touched on is M. Knight's large role in it 
and the importance of that role. And it, it just, com- mm-hmm. it took me at what little bit I was in the movie, it completely took me out of it. I, I'm really torn on whether I think that's a valid criticism. I can understand why it's annoying. I think it's odd that that would completely take you out of the movie, though. If you just look at him as just a guy who was playing a part in a movie and you didn't know he was the director, why is that a problem? Because it felt to me like he wasn't able to focus as much on the directing right. <laughs> because he was also, you know, supporting role in it. Mm-hmm. And, Here's- that, and I think, I think he, it felt to me like, like he got distracted by that because I, I love so many of his movies. You were concerned about his time management. You I guess you, <laughs> I guess you could you could make it that specific. I was searching for some reason that this movie didn't do what his previous movies had done for me, and it felt like he had put himself so much more in it as an actor. That seemed like a reason that maybe this movie wasn't nearly as good, mm-hmm. and that therefore speaking to it being bloated and self-important mm-hmm. in a way that if he'd taken himself out of it, the whole problem for me was that I thought the movie sucked and I didn't enjoy it, and I. <laughs> wish I hadn't seen it. It was really the whole thing. I do feel, I feel like, and this is what I said earlier, I feel like you did have, and this this might not be a fair thing for a director to ask an audience to do, but I feel like you do have to take on the mind of a child to enjoy this Sure, film. but I actually think that, and it's like hard really to say. really dumb kid. Can't read, like, like stupid. Like a one-year-old. Yeah. You don't even have a job. Who needs a walk. It needs a lot of exposition. I will say that Giamatti is fantastic in this yeah, movie. Yeah, I think the cast in general is pretty good. I think he is, he is doing a spot-on Richard Dreyfuss impersonation it's it's amazing yeah do you want me to do richard drive yes please do i can't believe there's that lady in the water (laughs) (laughs) that's good all right what are you guys excited about i'm excited about never having to watch lady in the water or 50 first dates again but i'm also excited that i can talk with my friends about things that we disagree about fight with your friends right fight with my friends about Mm -hmm. things we disagree about and still have a shred of respect for each other left at the end of each episode is that your real one i don't actually have one so (laughs) i I may come up with another one while you're going Uh, I'm going to talk about a graphic novel. Uh, it's called Who is Jake Ellis Dork. by writer Nathan Edmondson. It's about a former CIA analyst on the run for mysterious groups while being aided by a mysterious man named Jake Ellis, who appears only in his brain. Just reread this book along with its sequel, which is called Where is Jake Ellis? And it's the best action movie you'll ever read. When's this one coming out? Uh, oh, are we supposed to comment two, to that? Two weeks. Good choice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm excited about borrowing that from you when you're done. Oh, yeah. um, I'm also excited about going to San Diego next week to see my nephews. Love you guys. Uh, It would have been last week by the time this comes out. It's good to see you guys. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks (laughs) Had a great time. I am actually excited about way back in our premiere debut episode, Lance talked about Night of the Hunter. I hadn't seen it before and I went back and watched it a week or so ago and I was floored. I am absolutely in love with that movie. It was one of the most masterfully crafted, Isn't it incredible, beautiful, mind-warping movies I've ever seen. Does that mean we're back on good terms after Lady in the Water? No. <laughs> I still have a debt to pay? Yeah, you need to pick a good movie sometime soon and we'll be back on track. Black Stallion? No. That's the movie. <laughs> Do I get to say something I'm excited for? Or are we just going to skip over Gibby this time? Yeah, go. <laughs> <laughs> As I'm if that's something we've done before? Are you going to pretend like you had already seen Doctor Strange? I really yep. enjoyed Doctor Strange. Just go ahead and say you weekend. loved it because you yeah. will. <laughs> I'm excited about the expansion of the Harry Potter film world. I think that the Harry Potter film franchise is pretty awesome and I'm excited to see what they do at this point. I I'm excited this Friday. I'm excited to find out how Hudson feels about it. Oh, Hudson's gonna I think it. the trailer for Fantastic Beasts looks, looks so boring. Really? Yeah. yeah. I'm kind of I mean, Hudson. I have a feeling I'll love it. I love David Yates' Harry Potter movies more than any of the other Harry Potter movies, so I'm excited I, about it. I, but I, I, I disagree with you a little bit there. I actually thought it looked cool. I think the reason I thought it looked cool is because it was expanding that universe and putting it in like I mean, in, in America. Like, that's just really cool to me. Because as, as I read those books and watched those movies, I was always like, I wonder what's happening in America. And I think it's kind of cool to see that finally. So it's like Mormon wizards? 
<sighs> it doesn't happen in Utah. I think I think there's actually my joke is more complex than I can <laughs> actually get to. <laughs> in a, in a, Should we take about a, ten minutes and let a, you unravel no, it? No, in an inefficient way. Also, I like how Lance is like, yeah, yeah, Europe's okay and everything, but what are they doing in America? America, oh, I'm so America centric. Just because it's what Jesus was doing in America right after. There's n- I'm not explaining it for the podcast. <laughs> I was explaining it for you guys. Got it. Oh. All right. I guess that's it, you guys. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Hey, y'all. Join us next week for a crossover episode with the fellers of the Kentucky-based podcast, Talk Hard. We'll be choosing our top three films set in Kentucky, including an ultra-low-budget film shot on weekends over eight years. And they choose their top three films set in Georgia, including an incredibly foul-mouthed eight-year-old and a double feast of hair and hunk, otherwise known as Burt Reynolds. But first, here's a quick message from a man that once called Oliver Stone a fascist. Hi, this is Richard Dreyfus. Let us know your list differs at, at FightAboutFilm on Facebook and Twitter. Our emails at FightAboutFilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. Oh, and hey, what about Bob? Bob.